This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I'll read it to you. The Apostle Paul. Don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Agonizoi. Or agonizo, it doesn't matter. You can hear an English word that's rooted in the same idea of agonize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is the word of the Lord. Something like what? 10 months of training for 10 minutes of competition? Depending on what your sport is. And if you're in ancient uh, Greek civilizations, ancient Roman civilizations, you get a wreath taken from pine, pine needles and branches that fades in a matter of days. Of course, it's never about the wreath, is it? It's about having everyone see and acknowledge that you excelled, that you came and you conquered. And of course, then you'll be remembered forever, won't you? Nope. I don't think almost anyone here can tell anyone here who got any gold medal in the 1954 Olympics. And that wasn't that long ago. There weren't? Okay. Whenever the earliest Olympics were, 52. So, uh, unfluster thyself, Tim. Close enough, Cammy. You get my point. Is that people forget the thing that they thought would be so glorious and we had to sacrifice for because it matters. I'm trying to illustrate Paul's point, which is they do it. Athletes discipline themselves, focus themselves, train hard for something that only matters for a brief amount of time and then fades. But Paul says we do it, like the apostolic assumption there. We do it. We do what? We go into strict training for a crown that lasts forever. As to which most of us would then turn to Paul and say, we do? Again, apostolic assumption. His assumption is every follower of Jesus has to focus, prioritize, and say no to themselves to make this kingdom advance the priority of your life. Or it's not going to happen. It's a no-brainer. You're either going to be disciplined or you're not going to be faithful. Looking more closely, there's like four different things Paul says very, very clearly in this little passage. Aim to win, not just participate. In an age in which everyone gets a ribbon for participation, Paul's saying, okay, that's nice, but nobody's in the race to get a participation ribbon. Nobody, you know what I'm talking about? Nobody plays, like my son Israel loves basketball. He, 
he doesn't feel happy because he played. He feels happy because he, he blocked two guys, you know, and he broke someone's ankles and he made every free throw he shot. And the other, and his buddy, you know, made more points but missed every free throw. And he's like, yeah. Aim to win, not just participate. Therefore, if you aim to win, you have to what? Train to win. The battle belongs to the prepared, not the skilled. Not the, the skilled, yes, because skilled comes from preparation, not gifts. But the battle belongs to the prepared. Aim to win, not just participate, number one. Number two, train to win. Number three, train with focused purpose. And to train at all means, number four, you have to train through the pain. You have to push through the pain. Again, apostolic assumption, all athletes go into strict training. All followers of Jesus go into strict training. I remember being just graduating college, headed into seminary, and I was talking with somebody informally just hanging out. And the guy said, all my heroes were very disciplined. And I said, ew. Ew. I want romance. I want relationship. I want mystical encounters. I want adventures. I don't want like, you know, like Lance Armstrong measuring his food in grams and other things that he did. And, you know, just like this, like I want romance. I don't want regiment. And in the intervening years, what I figured out, not because of some vague sense of Christian guilt, but because of wanting, really, really wanting to live my life well, that to achieve that, a life of focus, and spend my days doing what I want to spend my days doing, I'm going to have to be disciplined because everyone else's agenda and parts of myself will collude to hijack that faithfulness. What did Paul go into strict training to achieve? Paul was not like, you know, I just want to get my tongue in order. I want to get my temper in order. I want to lose a little weight this year. Not, none of the sort of generic nonsense that around this time of year, people sort of, here we go, we're going to try again. That was not what Paul went into strict training for. Vague Christian spirituality. That, no. He went into strict training for one thing. He had a call on his life. It was specific to him. When he met Jesus on the road... He was commissioned for a specific task. You're going to represent me. You're going to be my witness. You're going to carry my name before Gentiles and rulers and kings. And you will suffer greatly for this. He said in another place, I have to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach it willingly, if I put my heart in it, if I press my will and I, and I go all out, then I get above and beyond the call of duty and I get a reward but if I don't, if I do it unwillingly, if I do the bare minimum, but I still do it, then I, you know, I at least escape punishment. But woe unto me if I don't preach it at all. In other words, God's displeasure will fall upon me if I don't at least fulfill this task. In other words, the discipline in Paul's life was not vague Christian discipline of I'm going to pray more, I'm going to read my Bible more this year. That's all great. But my guess is that like athletes, athletes don't train for a generalized fitness, do they? They don't train to lose weight. They lose weight as a byproduct 
of getting a specific skill set in order to excel in the clutch. And I think you'll find, this is what I found, vague Christian discipline for vague Christian goals will not stick. But training for your specific calling that deeply resonates in your soul, if you know what it is, so that on the field of the battle of your life, you have what you need to excel for Jesus. I think that's going to stick. And that's what Paul's talking about. Not vague Christian commitments because it's the New Year time. Like you might be tempted to think I'm talking about. But look at what Paul was able to achieve. Three or four, maybe, depending who you talk to, major church planting tours of the entire known world of his time. At a time when travel was dangerous, at a time when his message created danger. Planted so many churches, spread the name Jesus far and wide. Look at his literary achievements. 13 of the 27 letters of the New Testament are attributed to Paul, and in his day, he was probably not held with the kind of honor that Peter and James were held in. But now, he's the one who is the teacher of the church. Isn't that really interesting? In his day, he's like, you know, I'm at the, end of, I'm at the, I'm at the tail end of the apostolic parade, and I don't have a shirt. And that's nice. That way you can see all my scars. But now... The lasting legacy is he's the theologian of the church. His lasting theological impact is almost difficult to overstate. His insight into justification by grace through faith, not of works, has helped so many of us know God as love rather than as an angry judge. It's hard to describe his impact. His impact on ideas like community individuality, conscience, grace, freedom, and dignity. If you, if you do a study of philosophy, Paul has influenced philosophy. The idea of the self is really moving forward in Paul. A lot of the things that Kierkegaard and others way later discovered that from, from Augustine, Augustine got from Paul. And Paul was just working out his relationship with Jesus. It's just really hard to measure the impact, which is another way of saying he did succeed. He knew, too, when he got close to his death. You remember him saying, now there is in store for me the crown of life? He knew. He knew he ran well. He knew he laid it all out there. He knew he he left everything on the field, so to speak. All right. But we're not training for fitness sake. We're training to fulfill our calling to please Jesus. Which kind of presupposes that you better know what you're called to. I've been thinking about, you know, that story where Jesus is walking and he's really hungry and he walks up to a fig tree and it's not even the season for figs and and so the tree doesn't have figs so he curses it and it withers. And, you know, part of me was like... Jesus, you could have just like said, bear figs. You know, you have, <laughs> you, ha- you had the faith to wither it. Why didn't you just be like figs? And then they go, whoop, and you, thank you. And I think I mentioned that at prayer meeting and the rest of the folk at prayer meeting said that the reason Jesus did that was to teach a point. That it wasn't really about the fig tree. It's about our lives. That he expects us to bear fruit. 
It's really an interesting thing that Paul, Paul, I don't want to, I don't want to say this the wrong way. So I'm going to say it the wrong way and then maybe you guys can fix it, okay? Paul was scared of displeasing Jesus. Paul expected to stand before Jesus at the end of his life and that Jesus would sort of grade his homework, so to speak, or rather, give him, a, give him a, an assessment. Was this what I was looking for or not? Now, I'm going to leave that out there. I'm going to let you guys fix whether that feels harsh or not grace-based or whatever. But I feel like, you know, we, we grace people, and I think we are grace people. I, I know I am. We love the idea that God doesn't show favoritism with his grace. But my question is, are we okay with him not showing favoritism with his... I don't know how to put that into words. With that thing. To where he says in his parables, you didn't bear fruit. Pharisees, Jesus is saying this specifically, you didn't bear fruit. Give me that kingdom, I'm going to give it to someone else who will. You've wasted my kindness in your life. I'm going to give it now to someone who won't waste it. That's right there in your Bible, if you read. If you've, if you've, so, Paul has this mindset. I have an assignment. I've received something. Jesus expects me to be faithful and do something, produce something with this one life I have. I'm going to stand before him. I'm scared to displease him. I'm scared to have wasted it. I want him to say, great job, Paul, and high-five me. Is it okay? Like, again... If that theology that I'm saying is not exactly, you know, the right way and it should be, have different words, well, you fix the words, but hear my heart. We want to be the kind of fig tree that Jesus was after that time he was tired and hungry. And for Paul, what this meant was cutting all the distractions out of his life that might cause him to do something else with his time. The, the sower, right? sower goes out and scatters the seed. People respond very differently. Some start well, as soon as it gets hard, they quit. Others, they say they're going to, but they don't. Some start, but then work takes up all their time and energy. Entertainment takes up all their time and energy. And the next thing you know, they've done nothing with Jesus. And they come to the end of their life, and they've come to church, and they've believed the right things. But they've wasted their lives. They were theologically orthodox, but lukewarm, not close to Jesus, not doing what they were created to do because they were doing other things. Not other things that was like, you know, shooting up a bank and getting 19 people pregnant and, you know, being just generalized, just generally mean. They were just nice people wasting their lives, not pleasing the Lord. Right? Isn't that what the parable's about? And, And I think... Like, somehow we've got to be able to hear the idea that that's not something to be, like, scared of the fires of hell over. But we ought to be scared to waste our lives. Because I don't want to lie flat on my back at the end of life and look back at what I've done and say, whoops. You know? Let, let, me, give you, let me give you just a little, a little piece of what I'm talking about. By the time you leave your parents' house to go off to college, if you go off to college, let's say you leave at around 18 or 19 years old, by the time you leave your parents' house, you have spent 80% of the total time you will ever spend with your parents before they die, statistically. Like, like you know, probably, gender, what, what, average. Isn't that interesting? So, like, if you factor that in and, and, and you say, whoa, 
That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. If that's a priority to you, quality time with your parents, it's not going to happen. You're going to have to make it happen in the middle of a busy life. You're going to have to make that a priority and other things you could have been doing, less priority. That's just like a small example. But it's a similar thing to what Paul's doing here with his calling. A hundred different people probably had the same call Paul had, but they didn't say yes. I might have said yes in private, but not done it. But you know what I'm saying. Are we seriously thinking Paul's the only one in his generation who was called to do what he did? I doubt it. Anyway. No distractions. Paul worked for a living from time to time, seemingly driven to increase his leverage for eternal reward. He worked for a living. Didn't have to. He said the gospel gives him the right for the churches he planted to financially support him. But there were times when he didn't want the new converts to think he was about their money. So he worked. Preached in the evenings. Took support from another church who was already planted. Who he had planted Macedonia, which was poorer. So the Corinthians wouldn't think he's about getting their money. And why does he do that kind of stuff? He says, I'm doing it to increase my eternal reward. Isn't that interesting? You're not going to, you're not going to, Paul's like, don't, I don't want your money. I want, I want reward from Jesus. And even more militant than that sort of sacrifice is this. He says, uh, unlike some of the other apostles who take along a believing wife, I'm not about any of that. In fact, I think marriage is a, this is Paul, not Tim. I, this is Paul. Marriage is a total distraction from serving Jesus. You would, I wouldn't be caught dead married, this is Paul. Now, if you can't handle it, go ahead and marry, because it's not wrong. But I am going to tell you this. If you want to be about Jesus, it's going to be hard to be about Jesus and your wife at the same time. That's really fascinating. Anyone else think that's fascinating? Now Protestants won't even hire a pastor unless, unless the pastor is married. I had a professor back in college. For real. We distrust single men. We think maybe there's something wrong with them. Maybe they're on their way out. Will they stay? If he's tied down, we can trust him. And then we can also control him a little. But there's just something about a single... We'll send him off to war, maybe. That'll keep him from harming society, single young man. Yeah, send him off to war. Yeah, that'll keep him from harming us. When they come back, we'll get them married and settle down. And then when they're 50 or 60, we'll make them elders in a church. You know what I'm saying? When they're good and controlled, then we'll put them in charge. Um, with quotes around in charge. But Paul's like, actually, that's the opposite of the truth, man. I don't want anything to distract. I don't want anyone needing me in that way. I don't want anything taking my focus from this one thing that Jesus said I'm on the planet to do. I've got to call on my life and I've got to make sacrifices to make this the priority. I've got to say no to everything else so I can say yes to this. That's really interesting. I don't know what your calling is, but without discipline, it won't happen. Without you making it a priority and then building that priority into daily routines that are measurable and specific, it's not going to happen. Because if you don't build, know what you're called to do, turn it into an actual plan, turn the plan into a routine, a daily routine, and then stick to that, then instead, 
Every little thing that comes up is going to take your focus and become how what you spent your life doing. For example, are you dumb enough to answer the phone when it rings? When you don't recognize the number? Please stop that. Let it go to voicemail. Check the voicemail. See if it's a priority. And if it is, then do it. Just, that's free. So training has to do with your calling. Again, I'm not, this is not a sermon about it's time for the church to get back into reading the Bible again and praying. Of course it's time. It's always time for us to be in the Bible and praying. But that's not what this talk is only about. This talk is about are you in touch with what Jesus has put in you to spend your one life doing? And are you intentionally creating a routine that you are walking out to ensure that if, if you live a normal day, you're, if you, just by living your normal day, by the end of a life, you will have done what you were meant to do on the planet. Like, for example, if you're like, I'm called to write books for Jesus. Are you writing right now? Do you have a schedule built into your daily routine where you spend this many hours at this time of the day writing every day, whether or not you feel inspired? If that isn't happening, you're full of crap. You're never going to write a word. You're waiting for inspiration to strike. And inspiration's not what's going to strike. Facebook is going to strike. And you're going to be scrolling Facebook. That's how you will have spent your one life, reading about other people's meaningless lives. That sounded harsh. And that is how I feel about Facebook. Get on it at a specific time of day and then get off it at the specified time you're supposed to get off it. Otherwise, it will set your agenda for your day. Email will set your agenda. Text will set your agenda. You know, crises will set your agenda. Salespeople... Needy people, black, emotional black holes, people who only take and they never give back and they don't actually take your advice, that kind of stuff. People will take your calling away from you. One thing I don't do is answer my phone very quickly. And one of the reasons I don't answer my phone very quickly is because if I'm in the middle of something and you call me and I answer and I'm actually already distracted and frustrated that you're interrupting my thing and then I give you half my attention in the middle of my thing, I'm not even loving you well. So most of the time when you call me, I let it go to voicemail, I finish what I'm doing, I get my heart right, and then I call you in such a way that I can give you my full attention. Does that make any sense? Like my, I have people in my life that are not that way. Phone rings, drop everything. That made sense when you had one landline. You know, like in 1983, that made sense. <gasps> Someone's calling, what a miracle. Not anymore, everyone's overloaded on in each other's lives so connected like if you will just turn off the notifications and turn off everything and all the distractions and work solid for two hours without distraction you'll get more done than you could get done in two full days of half scrolling facebook instagram twitter sending texts and emails while trying to work at the same time what am i even doing here is this a sermon or what preparation Training has to do with calling. If you know what you're called to do, then you prepare for it and you train for it. The battle belongs to the prepared. In the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus talks about five virgins prepare. They get oil. The other ones are like, nah, I'm sure it'll work out. They're just positive. It'll just work out. Somehow it'll work out. And like my wife said to me one time when I said it'll work out, she said, no, it won't work out. Other people will do hard work and they'll make it work out for you, Tim. Because we were talking about the finances at our house and who's going to... And I was like, God's got this. It'll work out. And she was like, I run the budget. And I was like, yeah, but it'll work out. And she was like, no, other people will work it out for you. And then I said, I think it's time that I repent. 
In the parable of the virgins, five get oil, others, the five others don't. When the time comes, the five without start begging the ones with for their oil, and it doesn't, life doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work. You can't prepare on behalf of someone else for life. It just doesn't work like that. You can't prepare for battle on behalf of someone else. You ha- and you have to prepare before before the game, before the concert, not once it arrives. You have to train before the race, before the match, before the engagement. If you wait until the war is upon you, until the race is upon you, or until the deadline is upon you, it's too late to train. You don't have time for strength training. You don't have time for skills. You don't have time for endurance to be formed. You don't have time for weapon skills. You don't have time for communications training. You don't have time for strategy training. You don't have time for any of those requisite skills to be put in place for you to be ready in the clutch. It's too late. The battle belongs to those who prepare. I'll take average gifts with exemplary dedication and discipline every time over exemplary gifts with minimal preparation. I'm reading a book. You won't be surprised by this. I'm reading a book by an ex-military guy who was one of the point of the, you know, spear kind of guys in I think it was Iraq and then afterward he just continued with the same mindset that he had trained and trained his soldiers with and um, he was talking about finishing strong and he said that one of the things that our soldiers have to be trained to do is once you achieve your primary objective your natural response is to let up to relax your will to let let down your guard to feel a sense of relief and he said, so what, when they do training, when he'd put soldiers in training exercises, when they would achieve their primary objective, he would intentionally build into the, the game uh, that, the, that the fight would actually come to a bottleneck and an intense, in intensity on the way back from a, a, achieving the primary objective. And then as soon as the soldiers reached the base and the exercise was over, instead of giving them downtime, he would give them their next assignment to begin strategizing for because his, his quote here is, well, I don't have a quote. The enemy, the enemy is not stupid. The enemy is looking for you to relax and think, okay, it's good now. I can let down my guard. I can sleep. I can relax. I can put my gun down. I can take a nap. The, and he's not even talking about the devil. This is really interesting reading somebody who I'm like, this guy sounds like he's a Christian talking about spiritual warfare. And he said, so he wanted to train his troops. Essentially, you'll sleep when you're dead. And this is really interesting. It matches what a pastor I was hearing, Darren Patrick, years ago. I remember him saying that when he comes home from church, the, like what he does Sunday nights is he starts working on his next sermon. I don't do that. I'm exhausted. And I don't want to think about sermon for, for at least another day. But that's so interesting because it's the same principle. Because in his experience, you go into a, you go into a crash. You go into a spiritual and emotional vulnerable crash. You're vulnerable to despair. You're vulnerable to, to criticism. You're vulnerable to, to feelings of being a failure if you put your weapons down at the end of the fight and, and then just, Bleh, it's over, I did it. And now you're vulnerable and now you're under attack. Whereas if you keep moving forward and you keep focused on the objective, it keeps you encouraged, oddly. It keeps you from discouragement. Interesting. Jesus told me a couple weeks back, Tim, you need a project every single day. 
Well, that's fascinating. Carl was like, I don't need no dang project every day. That's fine, Carl. Jesus didn't say that to Carl. Jesus said that to me. But keep moving forward all of the way, not, to the, not from the primary objective, but to the final objective. And I think that's a mindset that Paul had that was so, inbuilt, so built into him that he didn't know how to let it go. The crowd was shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and their place is about to riot. And Paul's like, let me out there, let me out there. And it takes his friends, it takes his, his believing friends to say, Paul, don't do it, you're going to get killed. He gets stoned, and instead of going, ah, you know, I, I put in a good effort. I think I'm going to give myself a break and a breather, man. I, I've earned it. I'm going to go. I'm going to go on to the next town. These, these fools can go to hell. I don't care. No, he gets back up and he heads back into town to preach again. I, there's, something, there's something about this keep moving forward. Just because you've reached the primary objective doesn't mean you quit. You push to the next. Who am I preaching to, by the way? I don't, am I just preaching to myself this morning? I feel, I feel like you're looking at me like, I don't, I don't know about all that. Proverbs, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere, and the ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. Can I, am I allowed to smile about that? Like, lazy always loses. Lazy kills everything. One who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. That's another proverb. The one whose workmanship is shoddy, so the wall falls. Lazy always loses. Prepared always wins, man. The battle belongs to the prepared. The root word of discipline is the same as the word for disciple. Paul doesn't even have in his brain that you could please Jesus and not go into strict training. But again, we're not talking about vague spirituality for the sake of coming to church and saying, well, I fast twice a week and I tithe. No, we're talking about, I know what Christ has called me to do with my one life and I have disciplined myself to not waste my life doing other things. I'm about this. And the day that, you know the day that's going to start for you? The day you choose to do it now, today, right now. The intention of I'll do it later, that's loser thinking, man. Although I will, have, I will say this, like sometimes if you talk about it for a good couple of years, you'll finally talk yourself into it. We have the mindset that's the opposite. We have the mindset of I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. No, don't do that. Talk about it until you talk yourself into it, man. Make enough friction that first you may make a lot of smoke, but eventually you're going to make a fire. Don't, don't, like, don't give in to the thing of I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'll just show them by my actions. No, no, talk it up until you talk yourself into it. Because there's times when like, there's times when parts of you are in conflict. Part of you is like, I don't want to waste my life. I want to do what I'm called to do. And another part of you is like, but I want to watch Netflix. And that little pressure of knowing what you said you would do in public might be enough to get you to say, I better do what I said I would do. Don't stop talking about what you know you're called to do so that others can't judge you. That's healthy. Make enough smoke that you might make a fire. I don't know who I'm talking to today. This is weird. Keep moving forward. You can learn from the past, but you can't change the past. So sitting down and thinking about how well that went endlessly, that's not helpful. 
One of the things that's helpful to me about the keep moving on the next project and always having a next project and always being looking for the next project is that it keeps me from sitting down and thinking about what I just did, which you can't change it, you can't improve it, it's already done, in a way that becomes morbid introspection. I'm a, I have a morbid introspective personality. Like, if you look at the personality profiles, they're like, tends to overthink things, takes criticisms far too seriously, is his own worst enemy, that kind of stuff. That's what they say, like, online. And I'm like, you know me. So it's really important for me to keep moving forward to the next battle, keep moving forward to the next objective, keep moving forward. My wife, when she's, she's like, you're mopey, you need to go visit some people. Because when you encourage others, you get yourself encouraged. Yeah, but I'm depressed. I have nothing to offer anyone. Shut up, show up, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and then you'll be better. Okay. Just submit to your wife. She knows what she's talking about. Yeah. Let's talk about designing our daily routine. If you know how you want to have spent your, spent your life, and, but really how you spend your days is how you spend your life, then duh, that means that you need to reverse engineer the life you want and turn it into a plan for how you're going to spend your day with timestamps. Man, in college, I was so busy. I had to plan my day down to the 15, 20. Weston, how are you? Wait, I, I know how you were. You probably didn't have to work near as hard as me, and you still got good grades. Jerk. He nodded immediately like, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. So-and-so, he was my study buddy. Uh, you got all your connections, and you're working all your social capital with your good looks and your salesman-y thing that you got going on. Jerks. Um, but I had to work hard, Weston. Um, you probably worked real hard. But I had to work. I had to be like 15, 20-minute intervals. I had to schedule. I'm going to study Greek at, at 3 p.m., and I'm going to do this. I'm going to jog this many miles here, and I'm going to wake up at this time and do this, that. And I had to do it, or I would fail my classes because Greek was crazy and had all these other classes at the same time. I was too busy not to sit down and map my whole day out to the 15-minute interval. And my friends knew. They're like, ah, he's going to do that now. He's going to be in the library, in the basement, and with the loud pipes that are all clattering with the steam. With his Greek cards. Just trying not to fail. Okay. Now I have much more freedom in my schedule to be able to, um, to arrange my days more how I, how I want to. Then it, you, just, you just had to. You had deadlines to work from. You had to work backward. But all of us have some measure of control over our day, no matter what our job is. All of us have some measure of control over some portion of our day. And I used to say, you know, you really want people to fall in love with Jesus, you have to worry about what we do for our hobbies. Because you're, what you do for your hobbies is what's going to really take up most of your time. Do you know what I'm saying? Like fantasy football or basketball or like sports-related YouTube videos, I, I'm like, I don't have the cable and I, don't, I wouldn't have the six hours to devote to watching every NBA game anyway. But what I, but I, but what I like to do is watch the little, the little highlights reels which are deceiving, by the way. Everyone makes every shot in the highlight reels, and that's not. You lose the flow of the game. But my point is, it's amazing if you tally up what I'm doing for my little hobbies, how much time that actually is at the end of a week. It doesn't feel like long, because I'll just, you know, I'm, oh, I got a free moment. I'm going to look at that, see what's going on there. So I've said for a long time that what people do for their hobbies is a bigger influence on what how they spend their life than the things they do out of discipline. There's a lot of truth to that. It's just something to think about. Let's talk about your daily routine real quick. Your waking up routine is important. I don't know what your waking up routine is. 
But for me, I try to carve out solitude for my forenoon. I try. It doesn't work, but I try. Because I find that I'm a talky person and I like people and I love conversation. So at the end of a week, I can find that I have done no sermon prep. I have just done social interaction all week long. Unless I'm disciplined. And so for me, I try really hard. But my waking up routine is you start your day that while you're drinking your coffee, you also read your Bible. After you're done reading your Bible, then you do some prayer journaling and some listening prayer. And then after that, you write two crappy pages of sermon. I say that on purpose because the pressure, the vague goals that hang over our, for my head, and I should write an amazing sermon and, it should all, and I need to get ready for it. Well, that's so vague that I'll feel like a failure all the way till Sunday and never feel ready. And then after I preach, still didn't feel like I was ready and I don't think it was that good. But if I make my goal measurable and aim low, then it gets me moving. And getting moving is more important than aiming at excellence right now. You'll aim at excellence later. And here's what I mean. Uh, I forget what the company was. Their sales representatives outsold every other company. And when they were, when they were they kind of rever- other companies were trying to reverse engineer, how, do these, how does this company excel so much in sales? Well, they set extremely low goals for their sales representatives. Is that counterintuitive? Something about high or always increasing sales goals stresses the salesman out so bad and discourages them so bad. But low goals get them moving. And that's what we really need, isn't it? We need to get moving because once we get moving, once we get into it, we get into a creative flow and then we go. So you want to set small, measurable goals that help you feel like a success so that you don't resent the fact that you're here to work in the first place. So me saying two crappy pages a day I can do that. And by saying crappy, it means they don't, have to be, they don't have to sit back and at the end of the day go, well, this isn't even good. Of course it's not good. I, that was my goal, was to write two crappy pages. If it happens to be good, it's almost like a surprise. That's encouraging. I got in my two crappy pages. You know, so it's like 3 p.m. and I, mentioned, I text, texted my dad that got my two crappy pages done by like, you know, 11 a.m. Now I can be about other things. It's really annoying having to try to come to preach unprepared. You don't want to try that. It's not good. Most of you don't want to try it ever. Okay? But waking up routines are important. What do you do first? In what order do you do things? Going to bed routines are important. What's the last thing you put in your mind? What time do you go to bed? Are you budgeting enough time for you to actually be well-rested so that you can meet the day tomorrow? Or is it like me? I can finally be alone to do what I want to do. I think I'll stay up till 2, making music. Don't do it. Sweet in the moment, and then tomorrow all day you'll be like, more coffee. But waking up routines are important. Going to bed routines are important. I've I've talked about this. Don't let the first thing that you see in the morning be what's happening in the news, the latest dumb thing Trump said, or the latest thing that's going on with CNN, or the latest thing that's going on in some crazy country that wants to blow everything up. Don't do that. Turn the news off, people. Renew your mind. Become somewhat more ignorant of the so-called real world out there, and live in your Life, Okay? We could do that. We could do a joke like, 2018, it's time to live your life. Sounds like a weird motivational. A few more practical tips. I'm basically almost done. You might be like, that's a weird sermon. I'm like, that's a weird sermon. 
A few more practical tips. Okay, just real quick, like, uh, like six of them. Phone. Ignore unknown phone numbers. Don't answer the phone. You're letting someone else hijack what you were in the middle of doing. I'm assuming you were doing something productive when someone called. Keep doing that. Let it go to voicemail. See if it's something you need to attend to. And if it is, schedule a time in your mind when you're going to attend to it. Don't drop everything for everyone all the time. Good night, people. Uh, Number two, mornings and evenings are to spend wisely. I said that. Um, For me, mornings are for solitude, prayer, and creative output, not social calls. Afternoons are for social calls. Number three, watch out for time wasters. I'm not going to go into detail on that because I don't have time. Number four, turn your notifications on your phone off for the love of God. And I'm not kidding. So that you can love God and people well. Turn your notifications off, people. Turn Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Turn it all off. The only notification I even have on anymore is text. And that's because of you people and my wife. But that other stuff, it doesn't need access to me. Emails even turned off. I don't see emails until I choose to check email. Turn all that stuff off. The world out there is not that urgently in need of you. You are not Jesus. Uh, Number five, the state of overwhelm. How do you approach overwhelm in your life? Because there's really two strategies. You can work harder or you can prioritize differently. That's it. Number six, every week take a fast from availability for like a day. We used to call it a Sabbath. Now I guess we'd call it turning our phone off. Because our phones aren't really phones anymore, are they? Our phones are the whole world in our pocket. That's all I'm saying. Once a week. Um, Make as many clay bowls as you can in an hour rather than trying to make one perfect clay bowl. If we give you clay and we say, not Clay the man who's sitting back there talking to Austin, not that clay. If we give you a lump of clay and we say, we know you don't know how to do this, but try to make a perfect bowl. You have an hour, go. You're going to make a horrible bowl. But if we give you a lump of clay... And in one hour, and we say, just make as many bowls as you can. By the end, you will have made like three or four really good ones. Because there's something about just repetition, just just keep going. You're you're making these little... And that's kind of my thing with like showing up every day with a routine. And writing two crappy pages or whatever whatever your calling is. I don't know what your calling is, but whatever your calling is, that's how you need to to prioritize being about doing whatever that is every single day. Making 100 clay bowls. Because a bunch of them are going to be awesome. But if you're waiting around for the master literature, Holy Spirit anointing to hit you with lightning, and then you're going to write the next great American novel, it's not going to happen. The tortoise really does beat the hare. GPS taught me that me driving slowly, I will beat the race of you going 90 but taking restroom breaks and eating at the restaurant. If I eat in the car and pee in the two-liter, I will beat you going 60 and you're going 90. All right, that's pretty much enough. Um, What are your priorities? Kids are back. That's probably an indication that my time is over. So to do this, to do what I'm talking about, you don't go, now we're going to read through the Bible this year. That, you're not hearing me if that's what you go home hearing. To do what I'm talking about, 
I'm asking you to actually spend some time with Jesus, being honest with your own heart about what you know you want to do with your one life, and then design that as a daily routine. That is your homework assignment. Go ahead and stand for the benediction. I like what Bono said, I'm not afraid to die, I'm not afraid to live, and when I'm flat on my back, I hope to feel like I did. Let that be your benediction. Go in peace.